follow your passion. Isn't that what you should do? Shouldn't you blindly follow your passion? Because that's where the money is. If you follow your passion, you're going to get through everything. You're going to make a success of yourself. And if you follow your passion, you'll never work a day in your whole life. Isn't that a wonderful dream? But the question is, is it true? What would it take to become the hero of your own life? To build the business you've always dreamt of? To make money doing something you love? It's time to take control. Can we get on with making money and having fun now? I'm not doing it if it's not fun. Join the rebellion with Alan Donegan and welcome to Rebel Entrepreneur. So welcome to The Rebel Entrepreneur. I've been looking forward to this episode actually ever since I was in Thailand and I was hanging out with Christy and Bryce, Millennial Revolution. Welcome to the show. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having us. I realize now you have like a radio voice when you're doing like, uh, like when you're like, okay, I'm going to sound like a radio person right now. So it's like, that was really cool watching you do that. <laughs> In a world where... <laughs> It's just because I have a giant microphone, I feel like I have to do that. As soon as you put me near a microphone, that's it. I feel like I need to put on the microphone voice. Uh, my eyes light up when there's a camera in front of me, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, you've got to perform occasionally. You have yeah. to perform. So I met Christian Bryce at the financial retreat called Chautauqua, and we made friends, and I was blown away by Christian Bryce. The tagline on their website, which always made me smile, was they are Canada's earliest retirees. Although I see you've been challenged by another person on the internet for doing it earlier now, but boo to them. But Canada's earliest retirees, and they built an incredible blog called Millennial Revolution, which challenges some of the inherent wisdom about finances passed down by the generation before. And I saw their speech and I was blown away. I loved it. Last year, they released a book called Quit Like a Millionaire. And I read the book and it actually gave a piece of advice that was directly in contradiction to what the pop-up business school teaches. And I thought, ooh, that's interesting. And actually, this is where I wanted to start because your speech at Chautauqua starts with a famous quote, doesn't it? Right, yeah, that's yeah. Steve Jobs. The Steve Jobs, famous. follow your passion and that's all you really need to do, right? right. Follow your passion and... Everything will fall into place. Do you believe in that? Is that what you did? I did at one point, And then after we became authors, and then I realized how much money authors make. And then I had a little bit of a beef with Steve Jobs and his follow your passion to the um, detriment of everything else. Right, right, right. Because it's a great sexy message because everyone has different passions or everyone wants to be paid to do the thing that they love, right? Mm. And sometimes that the thing that they love, you know, He's a huge software and high-tech entrepreneur. So, I mean, like, that turned out to be an excellent passion to follow. But for other people, it may not be the best advice. I mean, well, you wanted to be with Steve Jobs time, is that right? he didn't actually follow his passion. <laughs> his <laughs> passion was actually to be a spiritual teacher. And he went to learn Eastern mysticism. And he went to India and got high and did all that really fun stuff. Yeah. Which I applaud him for. That I'm very much in line with Steve Jobs. Like, go cool. and explore, go and figure all that stuff out. But the, the thing I have a problem with is that if you just blindly follow one passion, but you don't actually do anything for the world, it's not fulfilling a need, then you won't really make any money and you kind of need money to live. So eventually he decided to go along the path of, you know, being a software CEO because that was actually fulfilling a need. And he had, ended up doing something more practical than his original plan. So just telling people to blindly follow their passion, I think there needs to be a bit of a tweak to that message. Yeah, yeah. Like, because there almost has to be an intersection of what you're passionate about and then kind of market forces, what the world actually needs, right? An example that you love to give at your pop-up business school is the guy that makes money reviewing mattresses, right? He goes, yes. oh, I'm sleeping and this kind of stuff, right? Well, he doesn't literally just sleep there and ask people to pay him to sleep. He had to figure out, what it is that where that intersection was of what he want, liked to do. You know, mattress reviewer is not literally a sleep person, like a professional sleeper. You're writing. You're, you're writing. writing, you're coding, you're doing SEO. Actually, you're, that's what you're doing. You're basically blogging and designing guides. And the value he's bringing, it's actually hard to choose a mattress. Because you go into the shop and you lie on them and you go, that's good. Yeah, that one feels soft. That one feels hard. What do I do? 
mean, it's actually really tough to choose a mattress. So he's bringing some value and helping people. But yeah, he's a writer. But when, when you actually ask people to follow their passion, it usually just turns into them kind of going very inwardly, like, what is it that I want to do? And it took us a long time to realize this, but when we started writing, we were writing stuff that just for the sake of writing stuff, just to make us feel good, like our first couple books were miserable failures. <laughs> uh, and then the one that we did get published, that was a children's book. But it wasn't until we decided to start writing in ways that helps other people do stuff. That's when all their success came. Like the, the, the blog, well, it's not just like a self-centered, like look at me kind of blog. It's a, okay, the point of this blog is to show you how to invest and how to travel and how to retire in your 30s and all that kind of stuff. Then when you're helping people, people detect that. And that's when all of our kind of success came. It took us a long time to realize that you have to help other people do something that they need to do. I think it also depends on what your passion is, right? If you look at Bryce and I, for example, he grew up loving computers. Like he was, right. you know, when everybody else was reading Clifford, the Red Dog, he was reading Q Basic. For yeah, I was <laughs> So yeah, form, very yeah. popular at parties, right? Um, <laughs> but from that point of view, he ended up being in a career that was very lucrative because a lot of industries need programmers and they need people to write code. For me, I wanted to be a novelist, not even a journalist, which would have been more practical. I just wanted to be a novelist, right? So later on, when I started writing, being able to actually have a day job and then write at the same time, I realized that a lot of the peers around us, because you actually do have to reach out to the community and find other people to pre-review your writing, a lot of them actually had multiple jobs, either teaching English or teaching how to write, or maybe they had spouses that were in positions where they were quite lucrative so that that was covering their expenses. So then that I started to clue in, like follow your passion, unless you already have the money to take care of your expenses, it really depends on what your passion is. He followed his passion, it worked out great for him. Yep. If I had followed my passion without thinking about the money part, I would just be eating cat food now. <laughs> and no one wants to just eat cat food. I think you're right. And this is actually one of the challenges we have on the pop-up business school courses is you get people coming along. And one of my the classics is, my passion is knitting. And you go, that's great. And then we work out how many hours it takes to knit a top or a cardigan or whatever it is, and the cost of the wool and the cost of the yarn. And the thing ends up costing $100, $200. Yeah, because the amount of hours you put in to make it. Otherwise, it's just not worth it. And then you go down the local cheap shop, your Target, your Primark, your whatever it is, and you can buy a knitted top from a different country for 10 bucks, for 10 pounds. And you're like, you're never going to compete at that market. But there are some tweaks and some different ways. Like we've seen people teach knitting. That's a different way to make money. And there is more money in that. We've seen people supply knitting goods, which is a different business and a twist. There's always a way to twist it. But you're right, blindly following your passion without realizing what it contributes to the universe is daft. <laughs> and one of the things you've said to me for a while, Bryce, so I'd love to explore this. I love this. You say that you've got the useless advice that before you understand it, it's completely useless in your life. Once you've understood it, well, you've already been doing it. So it's useless as well because you're doing it. And one of those is this add value. <laughs> yeah. Every entrepreneur like business book says that. It's just that it's one of these things where if you are just not in the right mindset to receive it, it means very little to you. So if I tell somebody right now who's like, you know, used to working as an employee, he goes, you need to add value to the universe. And then they're going to be like, uh, okay, I'm going to run outside and add value. I'm adding value to you. I'm adding, like, it doesn't really mean anything. But once you actually understand what that means and you start doing it and you kind of like, you know, you make your first sale and you go, oh, that's what that meant, right? So it's kind of like adding value is one of these things that, is obvious to every entrepreneur who is already successful. But if you try to tell somebody who doesn't understand even what those words mean, they don't know what to do with that information. So how would you explain add value to a new entrepreneur, someone who wants to launch a business, someone who wants to get going? How would you explain it? It's because it's so abstract. You almost need to make that lesson more concrete. So somebody actually wrote into me just a few weeks ago, about like, I want to start a blog and you seem to be really successful. So how, what's your secret in this kind of stuff, right? So I was like, okay, how do I explain add value? So eventually I kind of explained it to them. I was saying like, go out there, find somebody who has a problem, fix it for them and help them with it. 
Actually, to summarize, I totally agree with what he said, because one of my favorite business books from, written by a woman entrepreneur, well, my favorite phrase from her book is, forget about passion, find something you want to punch. <laughs> How she described that was like she came up with her business because she had a lot of friends who were trying to start up websites for they are they were already small businesses and they wanted to start a website and she was a coder. So she made websites for them for free in exchange for a free car. Like she needed a car and somebody was going to get rid of their, like they were a mechanic. So she made a website for them. They gave her a free car that they were going to throw out anyway. Amazing, right? That's exactly what you teach at Papa Business School. Like instead of trying to buy things, try to rent, like borrow it, or this person, she just picked it up from the garbage. She bought it for it. Yeah. yeah she Not literally it. someone you want to punch, but find like a, problem. a problem. You find something you want to punch. Find a problem you want to punch and then help people alleviate their pain. That's value. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's a good one too. I love that. I actually call that the rant technique. Find something you rant about, sign something that annoys you. And guaranteed, if it annoys you, it probably annoys a load of other people. Find them and fix it for them. Uh, And that's absolutely, my whole business was born out of frustration with something that was bad. And so many businesses are, you find something that annoys you. And actually, if it annoys you, the word passion actually has a Latin root meaning sufferance. And it's something you kind of suffer and do because you need to fix this or you need to make this or you, you're excited to do it. And I think that thing that you are desperate to fix to make the world a better place, that's also your passion. So I think that's just a different spin on where the energy comes from. But it is absolutely find that thing that you can fix. I love that rant thing because literally our blog was started off because she started yelling <laughs> old people mm-hmm. and I thought it was funny. Yeah. So I wrote it down and then we turned it into a video and then we're just kind of like, okay, let's take that. So if you go to our site, there's this video of Christy on there where she's ranting and yelling at old people basically, mm-hmm. right? By saying like, you know, the boomers are telling us like, do this, you know, buy a house, work at your job until 65 and like none of that stuff works anymore. So from that frustration, from that rant is basically where our entire blog came from. And then, so, so in yeah. that way, it's a solution to a problem. It is a, a lot of, problem. you know, people of our generation have. Exactly. Because they're disillusioned with the traditional path. Because yeah. it doesn't work. So Bryce, it sounds like you got a job and followed your passion because you liked computers. You enjoyed programming. That was your passion. Christy, it sounds like you did the opposite. You chose a career that would make you money. And that's actually one of the things we talk about is that choice of, do I build a business because I think it will make money or do I find something that I love to do and figure out how to make money doing it? It seems like you both had the opposite approach. How has that played out? It was much more painful for her than it was for me. Like what your passion is about really, really determines whether that advice works for you. Some people are passionate about working in a bank. I don't know many people that are, but those like... Those people are psychopaths. Those people are crazy. <laughs> but if you are passionate about being a day trader or something like that, then hey, you're going to be just fine, right? But if your passion is something that is a lot more artsy, it's a lot more... Yeah, your path is a lot more difficult. There is no one path to becoming a novelist. That works for everybody. But there is a relatively straightforward path to becoming a computer engineer. You enroll in the engineering program, you get through it, you you do well on your exams, then you are handed most of the time a job at the end of it, and they do that, right? But uh, some of our friends have realized that anything to do with the arts, like making that work professionally is like 10 times harder. It's You have a lot more competition. You have a lot more competition. Like less demand for it. Yeah. Like acting, music, like obviously being a writer, like that stuff is, man... When we were trying to get published and we were just sending out, le- like they're called query letters, Q-U-E-R-Y. And that's this letter that you write to say, I have this book idea. You're basically begging people to read it. And you're just like, you know, we were so afraid of our phone pinging because like, oh God, who just rejected us now, right? And it was like, that was the most painful experience ever. And we were in there, it's called the query trenches. And that's every author who's trying to get signed to an agent for the first time. That lasted for like five years of just constant no, 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 no. It sucked. It sucked. (laughs) Five years of rejection. Seriously, you went through five years of rejection. Uh, Almost 200 rejection letters. Yeah, that's kind of what it takes to actually become an author. That's almost one a week for four years. Yeah, Yeah, it was painful. After a while, we just turned off our phone. We didn't want to look at the rejection. I, I, I joke with other authors that, the, and I kind of say, an author is basically just a person who just wouldn't take no for an answer. Like they just couldn't take it. They couldn't take the hint. And they just kept, how about now? How about now? How about now? How about now? They're just, so those were dark days. 
so we talked about this like offline before that when you're in that like psychological state of like being told no every time it's very easy to get very you know bitchy or like you know lashing out at other authors who you think don't deserve it and this kind of stuff that they made it why them and not me now that i know what it takes for every author to even get a book published no matter what i think about the book itself and the quality of the writing if you made it that far i have an immense amount of respect for anybody who goes through that (laughs) (laughs) it's like psychological torture for like five years (laughs) so you were both fully employed through those five years or yep yep the plan was we're going to write this book. It's going to hit big. And then we're going to use that money to, to retire. And it's like, Haha. that was my <laughs> Stephanie Meyer Twilight money. I was like, hey, if Stephanie Meyer can write Twilight and it's not really that good and she's a multimillionaire now, this is going to be my ticket to freedom. And it's like, no, that's not yeah, how it works. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> so it's quite interesting. So what was your ticket to freedom? Because it, it sounds like it wasn't entrepreneurship. No, it wasn't. And that's kind of why uh, in our book, we kind of dump on the entrepreneurship a little bit because we tried it before. I thought that my ticket to millionaire status was either we write a best-selling book (laughs) or I create the next big Snapchat or something Oh yeah, we were working on apps too. Right. And what I realized is that being an entrepreneurship and that stuff and trying to hit like, you know, a moonshot venture capitalist funding, that is a really, really difficult thing because everybody is trying to do the same thing. Like if you ever spend any time in San Jose or Silicon Valley, everybody's working on their next, the next big app, the next app, just literally everybody. So it's incredibly difficult to compete in that field, you know. So what our path to millionaire status was, was investing, like investing in the stock market, being really, really careful with how we spent our money and living quite cheaply for a high cost city like Toronto. And then it's just dumping money into the stock market and then investing that way. So I wasn't expecting that to be the thing that would have done it, but that, but it is. And the, the coolest thing about that is that it's reproducible, right? If you teach somebody how to build a portfolio, you teach someone how to invest their money safely in the stock market using uh, low cost index funds like BTSAX and this kind of stuff, anybody can do it, literally anybody. But if I, for example, or you, start a pop-up business school and then you told me to do it and I literally copied your moves, it wouldn't work, right? Because pop-up business school already exists. So the coolest thing about what we ended up doing was it's absolutely reproducible. You can just literally just copy everything that we did and you'll end up eventually end up as a millionaire. So the way that how it works out in my head is like for us, like engineering was very, very difficult for me. I think for him it wasn't it was pretty straightforward for you, right? But for me it was very hard. It's it's like somebody told you to climb Mount Everest. And you knew the steps to get there because you could see it in the distance. You could take the foothold that they give you and you follow this plan and it's going to take you years, but you're eventually going to get there. But then writing was like being in a dark cave and you have to get out of the dark cave, but you don't know where you're going to find a match. You don't know if you're going to use a match to be able to see. You don't know which exit you're going to get out. And there's multiple ways to get out and there's multiple ways to start a fire and get light and all that. So it, it's very versatile and it's really good for people who like that kind of stuff because maybe the Mount Everest idea doesn't appeal because you know exactly what steps you, you got to take to get there. The other one is more creative. But for me specifically, like going from the mindset of school where it's like, you know, you're given this curriculum that you have to follow and then you got to get through these courses, then you get your degree and get your job. Like we've already been kind of trained to think in that very systematic way. So climbing at Mount Everest was something that is familiar versus going in a dark cave and trying to escape without knowing which you know tools you're going to use to get out is not something that we are familiar with. So I think the school system might be one of the reasons why most people would not be like they don't understand entrepreneurship because we've been trained to follow that kind of step-by-step plan to get to a solution. Yes, and employment is quite often linear. Do this thing, get promoted to assistant, whatever. Do this thing, get promoted to manager. Do this thing, get promoted. It has a very clear path, a very clear delineation, and you follow the structure that people have laid out in front of you. Whereas entrepreneurship, it is way better today than it ever used to be. There are blogs, there are podcasts, there are guides, there are advice. It's getting better and better, but it's still, if you actually said, I want to build a business doing whatever it is, build a business around food, there's still a hundred different ways you could do it. And then you go, well, okay, which one of the hundred is right for me? Well, it depends on your personality, your energy, your finances, your starting point. There are many different ways. And I guess the aim of this podcast 
is to remove some of the risk of entrepreneurship so that you can do it without debt because of the belief that it takes money to make money. However, the one thing I can't hand people is a, if you do these five steps, you will win the game. Like that does not exist. There's general principles of get out there, do stuff, make your sales first. Don't do it from debt, do it from sales, marketing. There's general principles, but there just is no step by step. There is no do A, B, C. It's actually quite an intricate process. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the thing is, like, everybody kind of has to find their own path out, don't they? You can't follow another guy's path. That guy made it out of that cave. He's like, yeah, but that was his exit. You got to find your own. And that could take, you could stumble across the right one immediately, or it could take you years of struggling and, and running around in circles and trying to figure that out, right? Like, she envisioned herself as a novelist of, like, white, swoony romances <laughs> where vampires come in and pick, like, that ended up not being the way to go. We ended up like, becoming a bestseller writing a finance book. If you would ask you in high school what kind of book would you want to write, there was no way <laughs> no you would way have I said would have thought finance. a finance book. Yeah. No way. Zero percent chance. But that's because it took us a while of stumbling, right? This is Quit Like a Millionaire is the, God, it's, it's got to be like the fourth completed manuscript we created. And two of them got published. And then there's another two that were just garbage and never saw the light of day. And then they're, they're all different. One was like a time travel thing. One was this romance supernatural thing. Yeah. And then the next one was like a super villain thriller kind of yeah. thing. And then it was a finance book. So it was like we were just trying different things and we had no idea which one was going to hit. And the finance book was the bestseller. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, is it the book that adds the most value to other people's lives? Absolutely. Absolutely. It is. Fiction doesn't like it. It entertains you for like a train ride, that kind of stuff. And I was like, oh, that was an interesting book. But uh, Quit Like a Millionaire is it adds massive value to people's lives because it's like, if you want to be a millionaire, follow these steps and you will become a millionaire. And it's sold for like $10, right? So it's like, that is a massive value add to people. So one of the concepts I learned from you both was the suit of armor. And I think it's a really interesting concept. I'd love you to tell me about the concept of the suit of armor, how it happens and what you think about it. Right. So one of the keys to our success, and for me to eventually actually be able to follow my passion by writing the blog and books now, is the fact that we are financially independent. So what that means is we have a portfolio that pays us a passive amount of income, which covers our yearly expenses. And as a result, we don't have to worry about money. So we call financial independence our suit of armor, because what it does, it, it, it protects you against not having enough money so that you have to go and find another part-time job. And then I would be writing and doing a part-time job. It protects you from worrying about, okay, well, what if I take six months off to write and then I'm not good enough and then I have to go back to work. Then now you have a set timeline to force yourself to be creative and force yourself to be an author. So we've removed that fear. There's other people that like, what if I get published, but then this book doesn't make as much money because somebody else wrote another YA fiction and they like that book is going to be taken by the editors. My book is not going to get taken. So then you don't get into this competitive mindset that stresses you out. So it takes that fear away as well. So because it takes away all these fears that would have prevented us from following our dreams and reaching our passions, which is where we are now, that's why we call financial independence our suit of armor. I think that suit of armor thing is when we won you over. In the presentation at Chautauqua, we put up this picture of like Iron Man as like a suit of armor as, as a visual aid. And I had no idea that you were the biggest Marvel fanboy at all, <laughs> like at all, right? Anyone that knows Alan knows that like every single piece of clothing that he has is like Marvel themed in some way. He's like a huge Marvel fanboy. So I was like, I think that's when I, we won you over. <laughs> you absolutely won me over. I was like, this is what I want. I need my suit of armor and then I'm going out into the world. And I think yeah. you are right that as I've changed over the years and as I've managed to save and invest and earn more money, it's enabled me to make bolder decisions that I wouldn't have made when I was younger. Well, maybe that's not quite true. When I was very young and I lived at home, I made very bold decisions because I didn't have any bills or any responsibilities. Then all of a sudden you get to that middle phase where you have a lot of bills and responsibilities and I didn't make as many bold decisions. And my confidence grew as my suit of armor grew. And then I was able to actually start to make those bolder decisions. And now this probably doesn't help the new entrepreneurs listening, but I think it's an interesting theory. And I wonder if we can find a thread of help. One of the things you've said to me is that when you don't need the opportunity, when you don't need the money, 
it seems to come to you anyway. Yeah, that's the strangest thing that I've noticed because I have friends and family who are, you know, struggling in their careers and this kind of stuff. And when you need the job, people can detect it. And it's like dating, right? If you're desperately wanting to like go out with this girl, she'll detect the desperation and be like, oh, no, thank you. But if you're like supremely confident, you're just kind of like, you know, whatever, then all of a sudden, like those people are the ones that like, get all the dates. It's the same thing with money, too. Once we no longer needed the money, the publishing industry came to us like quit like a millionaire. They heard about the blog. They heard about all the stuff that we were doing. And then it was an editor from Penguin Random House that contacted us and said, would you like to write a book? And then our response was, where the hell were you five years ago? Yeah, and our original response was, I don't think we should. <laughs> well, that struggle of trying and desperately begging the publishing industry to read our work, we were looking at each other saying, nah, I don't think we should say yes to this. Because we were like, do we want to get back onto like the writing merry-go-round of horror? So she had to actually convince us, no, no, this would be a really good book. And I was like, okay, fine. I can't say no to Penguin, right? <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, oh, yeah, ironic. yeah, that's the strangest thing ever. Uh, like when you don't need it, all of a sudden they come to you. It's unbelievable. So, Christy, what did your family teach you about entrepreneurship? Oh, boy. Yeah, so a little bit of background about my family. So my parents are immigrants from China. Um, and I was actually born in China. And I didn't immigrate to the West until I was eight years old. So a lot of my upbringing came from the practicality of the immigrant experience. So my dad, having been through like a cultural revolution, he was at, in a labor camp for 10 years. My mom, same thing. So from their mindset, it really is like, this isn't just about you. This is about your family. Like you need to be doing things that are practical. You need to worry about money and then passion is secondary. And then on top of that, my dad has a very, um, he has a growth mindset when it comes to like getting a degree and you can do anything in life. But when it comes to entrepreneurship, strangely, he has this very fixed mindset that if you don't have what he calls, quote, quote, the business gene, <laughs> you cannot be an entrepreneur. And he said, none of our family are entrepreneurs. You do not have the business gene. Therefore, you cannot be an entrepreneur. It was like a hereditary, like very yeah. like fatalistic way of looking at right. it. Like, oh, your family is not from, you know. Yeah, no we, don't, we don't have we anybody don't do that. like that. So that. you don't possess that gene. Therefore, you cannot be an entrepreneur, which is hilarious because we're basically entrepreneurs now. Yeah. <laughs> so that's incorrect. Yeah. So there is no business gene. It's, uh, <laughs> it's like everything else and you learn it by doing. Did you believe that, Christy? Did you believe what your dad said to you? That is an interesting question. I think to some extent, I did believe it. So one of the things that I find is really important when you're trying to be an entrepreneur, when you're trying to be a writer, like all these skills, that's not like a set in stone, step-by-step -step process is you need community. It's very important to see people around you doing it successfully. And it's really important to have that support. And I did not. I didn't really know that many people that were entrepreneurs, especially people that looked like me as well, right? Like people who came from an immigrant background and then like they found a way through the cave to the exit. So it was very difficult for me to um, understand that that's not a gene thing because I didn't see anybody who looked like me who was a successful entrepreneur. Right. And, and we were just stumbling, lost ourselves. So we were trying to figure this out at the same time. I was more hopeful. But after the third or fourth failed, you know, startup idea of ours, you know, <laughs> it was, she was starting to get a little bit like, okay, maybe I'm not cut out for this kind of stuff. But it's just like, I keep telling people like writers are basically people who just don't take no for an answer. Right. <laughs> so it's like, eventually when you do get it, then it's just kind of like, oh, I can do that. But it's just like, you have to keep trying and trying. And importantly, you have to learn uh, and try at it from a different angle. Right. So it takes a while to figure it out. I love that. So let's, let's come back to failure in a second. The bit I'd love to pick on is the environment you grew up in and how that affects you. Because I had the exact opposite experience. My dad was an entrepreneur. He was incredibly successful and then had incredibly large failures going bankrupt for multi-million dollars. We had the highs, the lows, we had everything. But if there's one thing that he taught me, it was the art of possibility. Like anything is possible. And he taught me that. And that definitely showed me there was a route. My wife's background is more of, you know, get a great education, follow the job, do this, do that. And it was a very more structured background than mine. The saying that I've been thinking about recently a lot is you are not responsible for the programming that your parents gave you, but you are 100% responsible for changing it as an adult. Oh, I love that. Oh, That's a good saying. So the programming that you were given, Christy, the programming that you were given, Bryce, how much of that have you changed over the years? How much of that remains? How much of it are you conscious of? 
Well, I mean, like, I, I think it really started changing when we started meeting and hanging out with more people like you, people who, you know, have this abundance mindset that anything is possible and this kind of stuff. And then that's when we kind of started to think, okay, maybe anything is possible because we see all the great stuff that you're doing with Papa Business School. And that's a network of themselves. We attended one of your, your classes and then just seeing like what you were teaching your students and then they were like going out and starting businesses. I was like, wow, you can, there's only a few different ways of being an engineer, but like because of the people that you run with, all these entrepreneurs, there's like a billion different ways to be an entrepreneur successfully. And I, I'm, I'm amazed each time by how the crazy ideas that come out of this world. And it's just kind of like, I'm going to make a career building escape rooms. And I was like, what? But then they go off and do it. And I'm like, huh, I did not know that that was a valid career choice. <laughs> <laughs> a valid career choice, escape room runner. Well, it wasn't. Yeah. Probably eight years ago, it didn't exist as a thing. And now all of a sudden, it's a huge industry. That's the most amazing part because like employees are like, we're kind of like the lagging edge of innovation because we go into established companies that have been around for you know decades, but like entrepreneurs are like the leading edge of innovation because they're like, they're just kind of like, I just thought of this thing and let's see if we can make it into a business. You know, if you try to explain like what the social media manager or like one of these like new jobs that these entrepreneurs that you help create to like my parents or their parents, they'd be like, I don't even know what that sequence of words even means. You know, like, uh, I tweet all day. And I was like, what? That's a thing? And it's like, oh, yeah, 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 totally. Okay. <laughs> from my upbringing, I think the main obstacle from becoming an entrepreneur for people who grew up like that is fear, right? Because immigrants have a lot of fear because they've kind of grown up in either like war zones or their parents have gone through a famine. So I think that part actually gets passed down from the genes. There's been some research that that could actually be part of your genes that you have that fear. So it's not the lack of a business gene. It's the fact that you have so much fear that you are not able to see past the other side of fear, right? Which is exactly why Papa Business School is so important because when you're surrounded by other people who don't have that obstacle holding themselves back, and then you can learn from them so that you don't have to run into the mistakes and you don't have to fail uh, because they've already failed for you <laughs> and you can just take the lessons away I think that's what changed my mindset, like just meeting you and going to a pop-up business school event and then learning that, hey, there's other people who have already failed. So your fear is unfounded because they actually found the right way to do it. And if you have that support and seeing other people who can do it, then you don't have to have that fear mindset. You can have the abundance mindset. Oh, yeah. Christy, like a few years ago before we met you, I call her Christy 1.0. <laughs> she is the most pessimistic person you'll ever meet in, yeah. in like your life. Like. Any, any I would be of, the worst flight attendant ever because I would just be like, we're all going to die. We're all going to die. Yeah. She's yeah. constantly like whatever we're doing. It's like what could possibly go wrong all the time. Right. And this kind of contrasts us a little bit to the fire community as well, because the fire community is full of the most optimistic people that you will ever meet because they're always like, you know, everything's going to go up and to the right, and, you know, all this kind of stuff. But for Christy and how we have structured our finances, it's just kind of like, okay, what if this goes wrong? 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 And then like all these different backup plans for what, what happens. Right. That, that's kind of like the, you can really see the mindset of that background of how you approach basically anything yeah. versus how Alan would approach it by being just kind of like, what can we do? I don't know. Let's yeah. do it. I think there needs to be a balance. Like it's bad to go either way. It's, it's a teeter totter, right? If you have too much fear, then you never do anything. But then if you're just constantly like Steve Jobs and you're just like, follow your dreams blindly, and then you're going to, you know, not have enough backup plans when things go wrong. So thank you for balancing me out. <laughs> so I'm not, you know, totally in that fear-based mindset now. Now I can kind of see the other side. So a little bit of both is good. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And people see me as happy-go-lucky and I'm just going to do it all the time. But I do think about what could go wrong. I think about doing it without debt. I think about minimizing risk. I do think about those things, but I guess actually that's what people don't see when they operate with me. What they see is, we could do anything and let's charge and let's make it happen. And that is me. But if I felt like charging out there risked what we had, I wouldn't do it. I would find a way to do it without risk. But you don't see that in the thought process when you look at an entrepreneur. You just see someone who takes risk. Whereas actually, I don't like risk. I'm not a big fan of it. I will take risk. If it's my ego on the line, I will dive straight in because who cares? <laughs> if it's my portfolio on the line, forget it. There's no way I'm doing it. I will find another way. I will find another opportunity. And I think that's a really important thing. People don't realize they think entrepreneurs are huge risk takers. And some of them are the crazy ones. 
But some of them aren't. Some of them are very calculated, the successful ones. Do you think your kind of balanced, calculated risk-taking comes from Katie? Because knowing Katie, she's also a very what-could-go-wrong kind of person. Or do you think it came from your, your history with uh, your parents? Oh, it came from my parents, 100%. It came from watching them, mainly my dad, watching my dad blow huge amounts of money, go massively into debt, gamble the family home, make us homeless. Like what he did to us with entrepreneurship was unbelievable. And I thought to myself, I never, ever want that to happen to me. And that was one of the biggest motivators for me to fix my life. And actually, that still drives me today to help other people avoid the problems that we went through as a family. That exact through line. It's rather interesting that you took that lesson from your dad's blowing up being an entrepreneurship and didn't say entrepreneurship bad. I don't want to do that. I'm going to go work as an accountant. Well, it had some good things. It actually had some good things. So I think the first time my dad went bankrupt, yeah, I think it was three in total. I was at school or college and he couldn't afford to give me pocket money. So I didn't have any money to buy food or live or do stuff. But what he did have was stock, sportswear, Nike, Adidas, Puma, all of that stuff. And he said I could take stuff from the shop at cost and I could sell it to the kids at school. And the difference that I made would be my profit. And that's what I could live off. So he he didn't give me money, but he gave me an opportunity and a way to make money with something that was cool. So I used to carry around this giant bag at age 16 and 17 and sell trainers and T-shirts and stuff to the other kids. Some months I made more money doing that than I did in full-time employment when I actually got my qualifications and left. Oh, that's a really interesting, that's like a double-edged you know, lesson. Do you think you would be an entrepreneur now if your dad was not an entrepreneur? That's a really interesting question. I'm not sure. So one of the statements I live by is you are the same person next year as you are today, apart from the people you meet, the books you read, the courses you attend. And if you can meet someone that is an entrepreneur that shows you, I didn't know that was possible, and you see a new model of doing it, or you read a book that goes, did you know financial independence is possible? Or you go on a course, that can change your world and... I was lucky enough at age 21 to be handed a self-development book by a guy called Matvey Mihailovich Ananin, an amazing name. He's a big dude. And he handed me this book and it completely changed my world and changed my direction. And I think that started me on a self-development path that alongside with what my dad had shown was possible, enabled me to get there. Would I have done it without my dad and seeing what he did? I'm not sure. I think without the combination of the two, I wouldn't have been confident doing what my dad did because all I had stored in my mind was that what my dad did led to pain. That's it. That kind of entrepreneurship, that kind of business led to pain. And I think it took the combination of like, he did make a lot of money and he was very successful for a while and then combine it with other people's lessons and possibility and you can make it into a thing. So I think it was the combination. If it was just down to my dad, I probably would have been scared off. Interesting. Does he still run a sporting goods store? I'm not really sure, Bryce. We had a little bit of a falling out over some mistresses and some different stuff. And Okay, let's just leave it at that then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've threatened never to speak to him again, and that's what happened. Interesting experience, but it's those experiences that shape you. And I think... You take those experiences and you either go, this is going to make me stronger and I'm going to become who I am, or actually, this is the reason who I am and I'm just going to collapse under it. And I think you have a choice with any of those experiences to turn it into something that drives you. Um, right. Like you could, it could have been really easy for you to go into like the victim mentality with that kind of background, kind of say, like, oh, I'll never make it because of these things that my dad did or, or I'll never, you know, that kind of stuff. Because, uh, you know, we know lots of people that will take one bad thing that happened oh, to them yeah. in the past and then like just use, use that to blame everything and, and use it as an excuse not to grow as a person. So, yeah, it, it's a combination of your experience, but it's also a combination of how you react to those experiences that really shape what direction that you go to. Because I know people who that can take a winning hand and flush it down the toilet. And I know people who can take like garbage and then turn it into like, an empire. 
Yeah, so what do you think makes the difference between those two people? Because one of the things I'm all about is what can people do differently? So based on that, what makes that difference? I've seen some observations based on like the people that we've seen succeed and fail. And it seems like some people, there's like three groups of people. There's people who are stuck in the past. That's my mother. I think that's who you were describing before, right? Who would kind of be stuck in the past and like Chairman Mao ruined my life. I had to go to the call for revolution. I can't learn anything ever again. And uh, my life is ruined and I will never get over it. Right. And then there's people who are stuck in the future, which is kind of, I'm getting better now, but that was Christy 1.0, which is like, I need to have enough. I'm never going to have enough. I'm never going to try anything. I'm just going to hoard money and bad things can happen. So don't try out of fear. And then what we found worked between the people that are successful and what worked for us is to stay in the present. Don't be too fearful, but don't be mental. Like one of these um, people that are just constantly stuck in the past and then you know, victim mentality, this thing happened to me, so I can never change. So being present and thinking about like, what is it I need to do right now, I'm going to be happy right now, because that time I will never be able to get that back. Those are the happiest people. Yeah, it's almost like it's victim mentality almost seems to be like the default thing that people do when they uh, when something bad happens to them, they, they dwell on it, right? Nobody likes growing. It doesn't feel good to step out of your comfort zone. So there has to be something in your history that forces you or inspires you to grow in some way because everyone has all sorts of shit in their past that you know some of it good and some of it bad but you you need to have that mindset of taking lessons from the bad things that happen and saying like okay i'm going to do this i'm going to do this differently i'm not going to do this or in some way but there's something that has to be some catalyzing event that kind of either forces them or to do that or maybe they just naturally do that but you know if you don't have that catalyzing event it's very easy to get stuck in the past forever i absolutely agree and i think what you said christy about the past the present and the future, what I've actually noticed is the people who are successful are actually quite good at slipping between the three when they need to. So if they need to be in the future thinking about what's next, they can be, but then they find it very easy to come back to the present and be with the people they love, be in the moment, be in the task right now. And if they want to remember the past, they can, but they're not stuck there. And I think it's actually the fluid ability to be able to go to the one that helps you at the point and be stuck in none of them because they all have their downsides because the person who is 100% present focused would spend all their money now, would blow everything because there is no future. And it's really interesting. I think you're absolutely right. The other bit you said was about the being able to take failure and having that desire to get out there and do it. And one of the things we say at Pop-Up is everything you want in life is outside your comfort zone. Otherwise, you'd already have it. So being a professional author was outside your comfort zone. Writing a blog was outside your comfort zone. Why did you bother? What made you step outside? Well, I did all that stuff because I wanted you to be happy. But I think the uh, more interesting question is, why did you keep trying? Well, that's exactly it. Like one of the things I remember from your public business school presentation is why, like your why has to be strong enough. And my why was so strong that being an author was part of my identity, even though I couldn't actually do that as a full-time living. I knew that that's what I wanted to do. Like if I was on my deathbed and I didn't become an author, I would regret it for the rest of my life. So that why was so strong that it pushed through 200 rejections It pushed through five years of going through the curry trenches and slogging through it. And it pushed through having to get up in the morning and write before going to work and then coming back and doing more writing and then giving up a lot of parties with friends and going out on the weekend to the right. The why was so strong that I just could not stop. It didn't matter how many obstacles were in my way. Hmm. That's a good answer. I love that. I love that. The size of your why will directly affect how quickly you'll get through those hows and how much you'll push through. That's Yeah, absolutely. And the language you used around that, if I was on my deathbed and I looked back, I knew I'd regret it. Like that's some strong language. That's some very strong regret. I would be motivated by that. (laughs) And again, in the most pessimistic way possible, what if I die tomorrow? No, it it actually changed my, how I view funerals. Because I used to be very scared of going to funerals. I used to be very scared of just walking by a graveyard because I would look at all these gravestones and I would realize that if I died at this moment, I would regret it. Then I would be really anxious about, oh my God, there's so many things I need to do in life. There's so many things I need to accomplish before that happens so I don't have any regret. But now 
I don't actually have that fear anymore. And I used to have a fear of getting on planes because I thought if I, you know, if I died in a plane crash, what would my life have amounted to? Like, I didn't actually do the thing I really wanted to do, but now I'm not afraid anymore. So it really does change your entire perspective. Yeah. Where do you think that came from? Because, you know, uh, you and I run these Chautauqua things or you run the Chautauqua things. I'm just there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you are an integral part. <laughs> and one, one of the things that we do at these is try to like get people to think about what do you want to do after retirement? And a lot of them are just kind of like, I don't know. I just never thought of that. And you had this like innate desire that just drove every action that you took that you wanted to be an author, you want to be an author. Where do you think that intensity came from? That's a really good question. I know my dad did say that he liked writing at one point. So there might've been some, like that's the type of thing that I use. That's the thing that fulfills me in terms of creativity. I think also because Growing up, I was quite introverted. Now I'm more of an ambivert. I can be extrovert and introvert. So when I was little, being an only child, I also read a lot. So my love for books, I'm pretty sure, is what drove me to want to be a writer. Hmm. Okay, cool. So what I would love, if you had any top tips for bloggers, because you run an incredibly successful blog in the FI world uh, called Millennial Revolution. If anyone wants to learn about being nomadic, financial independence, investing, I highly recommend their blog. The investor series of workshops is fantastic. Do make sure you read that. But if you had some advice for someone who is starting blogging, what would your advice be? What would the first steps be? Someone wanted to launch a blog, where would they start? A lot of people come to me and, and say, like, how do I make money blogging? That already is like they're asking the wrong question. They're asking, how do I get the result of money coming into my account? If you want to do blogging, the first question you should ask is, who do I want to help? What do I want to help them to do? And how can I help them to do that? And when you start with that question, you naturally start thinking about the reader, right? There's lots of bloggers. And this is a very, and I'm not dumping on anyone in particular, but it's a very natural thing that when you write a blog that you write about yourself. Here's what I did today. Here's what I ate. Here's my little TikTok video. And that's fine. But if you are always focused on yourself and in a self-centered way, People don't come back. If you care about your readers and you want their lives to be better in some way or shape or form, they detect that and then they like you and then they come back. So every piece of success that we got with the book, with the blog was because I was always asking myself, how am I helping people invest better? How am I helping people reduce their fear level about their money? How am I helping people retire? And that's kind of why we have the following that we do. Mm -hmm. I also think that in order to write a successful blog, you have to love writing and you have to be consistent. So one of the things that we did to determine whether this blog would actually have enough fodder to be able to continue writing it for years was we took out a piece of paper and we wrote a hundred subjects related to fire and see if we could actually come up with it. It was very easy, like a hundred articles, a hundred article topics. I wrote more than a hundred and I kept going. So I knew that this was very fertile ground for that. And I think for people who are doing this exercise, you also want to keep in mind exactly what Bryce said. When you're thinking about the topics that you want to write, how does this help somebody else? Like, how does it solve one of their problems? And if you think about in terms of like how you're going to help them rather than about yourself, that makes it even more useful. And if you can do 100, that means that you will probably be able to continue writing the blog for years, which is what you need to do to have enough content for people to read. I love that. So we've got focus on helping other people. Yep. See if you can generate the ideas. I love the exercise of 100 blog posts. I think that's a fantastic exercise. So I'm, I'm pumped. I know how I can help other people. I've written my first three blogs. I've put it online. I've sent it out there. Woohoo! I've built it. What next? <laughs> what next? Go meet your readers. Go out and find where the people are, what your target audience is, and go figure out where they hang out. And then tell them that, hey, you know, I know you guys have this problem, and I wrote something that will help you. And then that's where you start growing your audience. For us, we also decided to go right out onto the media. So we kind of took this message to be like, okay, where's our audience? It's millennials that are frustrated with the housing market. So we kind of went to Canadian media and then we kind of went, okay, we have a solution again, but it was always about like, not like, look how I did, look what I did. It was like, here's how we became millionaires by not buying housing, right? And then that immediately has this like a hook and a need that the reporter picked up on and be like, oh, a lot of my readers are going to want to know about this because they thought that the trick to becoming a millionaire is to buy as much house as you can. And then we were saying, no, that was the exact opposite. So find out where your audience are, identify the problem that they have and offer a solution, then they will come to you. I love that advice of find where the audience are. And actually you can 
There's meetups for everything. There's Facebook groups for everything. There's LinkedIn groups. It's so easy nowadays to find the audience you want to support and find the problems on social media or in person. I think that's a fabulous piece of advice. Christy, I don't know how to do this stuff before they had all this like Twitter, uh, Facebook stuff. I mean, like imagine like for your dad is trying to figure out like how you get his first audience. It's like, there's so many tools online now that I'm just kind of like, God, what did people used to do back then? Did they put out flyers? Did they like stand yeah, on the we street? did flyers. So I guess the similarity is if you think of the internet as a digital main street or a digital high street, you put your website on there, you make sure it shows up for the right keywords and you make sure the traffic passing goes to it. In right. the old days, you buy a shop where there's the most passing traffic and then you hope it comes to you or you go and hand out flyers. The amount of weeks I have spent walking around the streets of Farnborough, Hampshire, handing out flyers for my dad's sportswear store when I was younger is unbelievable. And I would flyer all the houses. I would flyer everything. That's old school marketing right there. Oh, boy. That sounds awful. <laughs> Uh, Christy, you look like you were going to add something there to the steps for the blog. Right. So I, I would say that one of the practical ways to do it is exactly what you mentioned, which is like SEO, right? Do the keyword research, figure out what people are searching for, and then they'll be able to find the solution to their problem from your blog. I think the other one that works out quite well for us is instead of trying to reinvent the wheel, find another platform that's already big. For us, it was the media. Like, don't ask what they can do for you. Like, oh, media, come pay attention to my blog. Like, why would they care about that? For us, I did the research on one of the uh, journalists who was writing about housing in Toronto. And I realized that she had a different take because everybody else was like, buy a house, and then you're going to get rich, right? She was trying to go in different angles. It's like, does it make sense to rent sometimes instead of own? And then she had featured another blogger who had paid off his house very quickly, right? So I knew that she was really interested in personal finance and she was interested in our subject matter. So I actually pitched her. And here's where your previous skills come in handy because we already knew how to pitch as a result of writing the book and getting 200 rejections really teaches you how to hone your pitch. So we pitched her about, hey, you know, I noticed that you have a different take on housing and most of your audience likes to read this type of article. We have a story that we actually retired from not buying a house instead of buying a house. So that gets her attention because it's the opposite of everything else that other people are pitching her. So it makes her stand out. And she responded to me literally within five minutes and said, yes, I would love to take on your story. And this is one of the biggest uh, this is CBC, so it's one of the biggest, it's like the CNN of Canada, right? So I would say like find a media outlet or find a large blogger and really understand what their needs are and then provide them, like make it so that it's easy for them to do their job and to get their content, provide them exactly what they need. Nothing moves faster than when you're presenting a solution to a problem that they already have, you know? <laughs> You see a guy standing around trying to shovel snow and the shovel breaks and you have a shovel to sell them, boom, you just got to sell right there. <laughs> and I love that because we're almost right back to the start of the episode about adding value, finding a problem that you can fix. And it doesn't really matter whether it's to get PR, whether it's to fix a problem, you find a problem to fix it and people will be grateful and support you. Yeah, people are really bad at pitching. I get so many pitches from people on our uh, to our email kind of going, hey, I'm a new blogger. Can you do something for me? And I'm like, I don't know who you are. Why would I do that? But, you know, <laughs> it was just like, uh, delete. But if it was something like that, where it's just kind of like, hey, I, you know. Like, I'm a lawyer, and I heard that you were writing about rent versus the keep your rent movement, and I have a very interesting perspective on evictions. Right, yeah, Stephen. Yeah, yeah, he was just kind of like, I'm an eviction lawyer, and would you like to hear about this keep your rent movement from the perspective of, like, People are trying to evict each other. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's a great angle. See, now I don't have to go do extra work to find the content related to what I wrote about. And it shows that they did their research. Right. I love that because that's absolutely the pitch. And I don't care whether you're pitching to sell, pitching to get PR, pitching to get an article. It's the same thing. Research the person, work out what their problem is and pitch them something they would be interested in. And it sounds simple. And I don't know why so many people can't do it. It's simple, but it's, it's again, it's one of those things where it's so obvious once you do it for the first time and it works. But if you're trying to explain to somebody who is just, they have to be in the receptive mood to like figure it out. Because again, it's one of those things where it's so obvious once you know it, but it's not obvious when you don't. You don't know what you don't know, right? It's like with writing, like you have to develop the taste to be able to tell what's good and not good. And that comes from experience. I'd love this bit to be sort of a wrap up to the episode. One of the things you said to me was about being a writer means writing, and so many authors want to be an author, but they don't want to be a writer. 
And I'd love you to sort of clarify that distinction and what you mean. And maybe we can look at, at that about doing what you love versus wanting the result and how those two things are contradictory sometimes. Yeah. So I've had readers write into me and say, like, I want to be an author. Like, what do I need to do to be an author? Just tell me, like, I'll do it. I'll do anything. And then you tell them, like, you need to consistently sit down and write for an hour every day. You need to do this. Right. And they're like, but like, I don't want to do that. I just want to be an author. And then it's like, well, okay. So one of the sayings we have in the writing world is you need to park your butt in a chair and bleed onto the page. And if you're not willing to do that, you want to be an author and you want to be famous. You don't actually want to be a writer. Like you want the end result, but you don't enjoy the process of getting to the end result. Yeah. Everybody wants the uh, like, oh, I get to sit on a panel and sign books and mm -hmm. have people fawn all over me. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, you got to kind of earn it first, right? Yeah, <laughs> gotta, like those people don't just get to be there because, oh, they figure out a magic key. It's because they write. They write every day and they write because if they don't write, it makes them feel bad. <laughs> and you have to, it's about rewriting too. It's not just writing it. It's perfect the first time and you just publish it. You have to write it again and again and again, sometimes 16 times until it sounds good. So it's the same kind of thing with an entrepreneur. Everyone wants to be Elon Musk because right. they're like, man, he's got a spaceship. He's got all these billions of dollars. And mm -hmm. I was like, Elon Musk at one point lost all of his money from PayPal and was living out of a car or something like that. And I was like, are you willing to do that? You know, because like that's sometimes that's what it takes to be Elon Musk. And if you're not willing to do that, then you don't get to be Elon Musk. I think you're absolutely right. Are you willing to pay the price for the goal? If you want to be an entrepreneur, the price is the hard work, the effort, the sales, the marketing, the learning. If you want to be an author, the hard work is learning to storytell, learning to develop characters, writing, writing, writing. And there's a huge price to these things. When it doesn't feel like a price, is when you actually learn to love the process of writing. Then right. it doesn't feel like there's a price because you've actually enjoyed the journey. It has to be something that you actually enjoy, otherwise you're not going to do it. But the thing with writing, the thing with anything is there's that core part of it that you like, but there's all that gunk around it that's not fun. Like uh, we were just in Thailand uh, and, and went at the Digital Nomad Conference and a lot of them were just coming, oh, I want to be a digital nomad. I, I want to be a digital nomad. And it's like, Okay, like unless you know what it's like to to scream at PayPal because they blocked your account and all of your money is like trapped somewhere. Yeah, Alan's pointing at himself right now because this happened to him. That's the price. Like you don't know whether you're going to actually enjoy it because like some parts of being a digital nomad suck. Yeah, you have to have the good parts and the bad parts. You don't just get to have all the fun and good parts and then not have to do any of the Yeah, bad being a digital nomad is not all just uh, sitting on the beach and <laughs> typing into a laptop while sipping margaritas, despite the fact that that's what that industry presents. Sometimes it's screaming at PayPal. <laughs> I know exactly what that is. I know exactly how that is. And yeah, PayPal actually held hostage like 80 grand of money from me for some time. They nearly killed one of my biggest events. And you're still bitter about it. <laughs> yes, I'm not a fan. If anyone's listening... PayPal is a fantastic way to get started, but if you actually make any money, they are a hideous company to work with. Great way to get started, great way to launch. But if you're actually going to do some serious money, 10, 20 grand plus, avoid them like the plague. Well, there goes your affiliate income. For you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I would rather help the audience avoid the pain <laughs> I've been through. I am still bitter, Bryce. I am still bitter about the way they treated me. That was unbelievable. Your FI armor is showing. You're like, I don't care about the money. I only care about you. Also, he's still angry, so. <laughs> <laughs> he's still angry after all these years. <laughs> so, Christian Bryce, what's next for you? Where are you heading? I don't know. Right now, from the kitchen to the bedroom and then back to the living room. Yeah, we're, so we're, we're not able to travel and like have our normal nomadic life because of what's been happening. Goddamn pandemic. We had yeah. so much cool stuff planned this year. We were going to fly to L.A. and be in a documentary. Then we we're going to do a Google talk. And then we were going to like financial do event. A, a financial summit with Grant Savage here. And then we were going to do a TV show. Everything got <laughs> blown up. Friggin' everything. So yeah, I don't know. I would like to eventually gradually return back to normalcy so we can do that again and, and get traveling. But right now we're just yeah. staying safe, staying indoors and not going anywhere. Well, when you are released from the wilds of Canada, we must hang out. So I will meet you somewhere around the world and we will hang out. Thank you so much for being the podcast. Thank you for bringing your energy, your enthusiasm and your advice. I absolutely love it. If the audience want to find out more about your blog and your book, where do they go? 
So you can go to our blog at www.millennial-revolution.com or uh, you can read our book, Quit Like a Millionaire, out from Penguin and available wherever books are sold. Which right now is Amazon and Amazon. (laughs) Yes. No bookstores are actually open, but pretty much everywhere books are open. I have read Quit Like a Millionaire. It's actually been a big influence on me. And Katie and I left on our nomadic adventures earlier this year. It's a fantastic book with a great story and some fantastic advice. So I highly recommend reading Quit Like a Millionaire. Thank you, Christian Bryce. Thanks for having us. So that was episode 23 which we actually covered a huge amount about blogging, passion, financial independence, all of those subjects. Episode 24, I'm very excited about this gentleman called Keith Hunt, and he has been able to build a restaurant without going into debt. We go through his story, how he started, how he failed, how he's done it whilst having seven kids and how he's made progress. It's an incredible story. That's episode 24. And then after that, we have episode 25, which is actually a takeover episode where Sean Jenkins of Benefit Focus takes over and I am the interviewee. So if you want to hear Sean Jenkins grill me and he does ask some difficult questions, then tune into episode 25. Thank you for listening to The Rebel Entrepreneur. What Christian Bryce and I would love you to do is to go out there, take action and to make things happen. We don't care whether you want to become a millionaire write a book, launch a blog, or build a business. Just do something. You've been listening to Rebel Entrepreneur with Alan Donegan. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes to get new, fresh episodes as soon as they've launched. To stay up to date with the rebellion, visit choosefi.com slash rebel. Thanks for joining the rebellion.